Yeah, we'll let everybody, we'll give everybody a couple moments here to come on in. Boy, we've got a good one tonight. Oh my gosh. We've got one of my favorite people this evening, the Cole Masters. There's so much, there's so much I want to talk, we're going to talk about. Um, Nicole, hang on just a second. Um, I just want to, I just want to say a couple things at the beginning. I mean, folks, I, I just came from my grandson and granddaughter's soccer. They're two years old. I, I, I know the first thought that goes through your mind is, is, is organized chaos. And that's what, exactly what it is, but I could not have been more relaxed and more, you just forgot about everything that's going on and enjoyed those two kids. So please, if you have grandchildren or children of your own, please take time out of your day to spend with them because I'm telling you folks, it goes in a hurry. So anyway, enough of that. Giddy up, let's go. We've got Nicole Masters. Nicole, how are you doing? I am absolutely fabulous, Rick. It's always great to talk with you. I just uh, feel that expansiveness that you introduced with this idea of thinking about gratitude and spending time with your kids. You know, I really get that sense when I'm with you. You know, this is a bigger conversation than let's talk about mycorrhizae, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This Thanks is awesome. for having me. Oh, this is an honor. We've had we've had so many good guests on this podcast so far, and you're just another one added to the list. I'm going to tell you, folks, this is the this is the best um, agroecologist that I've ever met right here on the show tonight. <laughs> so, how many now, agroecologists do you know? <laughs> well, I know I know a few, but you are the best. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you, Nicole, the same thing I ask everybody else. What is on your mind right now? Oh, so much has been happening in the last couple of weeks. I watched you, Rick, on that um, Congress discussion around uh, regenerative ag. We've also had the Climate Smart release of the first round of projects to be funded by the government. So, you know, seeing these these initiatives and seeing this growing interest in regenerative agriculture, um, which needs to happen. Absolutely, we need to be having these conversations. And what I'm hearing through all of this is, I guess, a concern about the greenwashing and really in our core, of course, what's actually shifting. We're not talking about, hey, let's try a bunch of different practices or a Bayer, for instance, have just created a herbicide that sequesters carbon. They have solved the greenhouse gas issue. You know, and, th and that's my, my concern is where are we really looking at the structural supports and where are we really looking at, at this for ourselves internally? Because that, that this is what needs to shift is what's over here with me and you and all of us as individuals to really shift what's happening globally and this is the only part that I can be accountable for myself and and I think one of the things is managing overwhelm and feeling like hey there's there's so much work to be done because you know if you if you look at everything that's going on it's like oh humans are just heading for this we're just going to go over the cliff and, and that's it and I'm not committed to that but really looking at where is it that, right. that, that, that I play a role without feeling like you know, I've got to be working my butt off because that doesn't serve me and then I'm not being regenerative in myself. And so I think I'm coming full circle in this piece of self-care, 
um, and working with people that I see as being really impactful in the world right now. And it's, it's getting me very excited. Not that I ever get yeah, excited. I, I you, you mentioned something there that we don't think enough about, and you've got to worry about yourself being your, what is happening to you in your life? And are you taking care of yourself? Because Nicole, we, you travel a lot, you speak a lot. I mean, it's hard on, on the body. So, and I tell you, I've got it, it you know, this is, this is like a farmer who says, you know what? We've been farming 5,000 acres okay, but if we were to drop to 2,000, we could really do a good job. That's the attitude you're taking, and it's so refreshing. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, when, you know, when you were, you were really, you know, cranking and you're out speaking and everyone wants to be with Nicole and you're wanting to do all this consulting, but then you're like, yeah, you know what? I want to go. Let's, so let's talk about that different direction. Uh, yeah. You know, integrity soils. Let's talk about it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because um, things were in pro process before COVID hit. So I I published my book in October 2019. I had as of March I had 55 events for this book tour and everything planned out. And I was on Kangaroo Island um, working with producers that had just dealt with an absolutely catastrophic fire. A hundred thousand head of livestock had died in that fire. Neighbors were burying each other's animals and just being really present to we need to be having these conversations around stress. We need to be having conversations about what's, what's really the enabling or limiting factor on a property right now and seeing that kind of reflected in myself. Like I was literally like I was running from fire in feeling like I've, I've got to do all these events and, and I need to be traveling and I need to, wow. you know, how, how can I, you know, I was talking to about 10,000 people a year and that whole COVID was like, okay, boom, let's take a moment to breathe and look at what is this, what, what is it that lights my fire? Where am I in flow? Where is it that actually I feel like I'm still fulfilling on, on making a difference and an impact. And it really is coaching others to go, I don't need to be the one. I don't want to be the guru. I don't want to be the expert because that kind of always makes me feel a little ill. But how is it that I can support others in being able to communicate what we're seeing as being really successful on the ground? And, and so that whole aha, I dismantled all of the consulting business side. You know, there's a whole lot of brilliant people I was working with that I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go back to my core driver which really is around education and um not, not spread myself thin and feel like i'm sharing this knowledge with people that are going to make a difference in their yeah. own local context yeah yeah i love that absolutely love that so i know i think i think i know you've had one graduating class is that correct in your own class number two now is that correct yeah yeah so we developed a program called create which stands for, like in the background, it, it stands for consciously regenerating ecosystems in agriculture through transformative experiences. So we promise people at the start of this 20-week training who want to be agroecologists, who want to be coaches or consultants or educators, we, we make a very clear promise. You will not be the same person that finishes this course as the one who starts it because we are currently inadequate 
as individuals to solve these many wicked problems from climate change to water quality to, um, you know, imbalances of justice, all of this. We can't do it. We are not able to do that right now. But what will it take for us to be able to fulfill on those promises and really make a difference and feel really proud and know that at the end of your life, you could die and go, I did, I did my best. I've actually stewarded land. I've passed something on to my grandkids um, instead of what many people yeah. are doing now. Yeah. So we have just finished. We're halfway through number two. We're about to um, open up applications in Australia for the Australian one. And I just got off the phone to um, some amazing people in, in the UK and looking at taking this to the UK. And my dream is that other people will be delivering this program. So it's not just awesome. me. Yeah. Yeah. See, this, folks, this is what um, uh, Nicole talked a little bit about this earlier, but I testified a week ago to Congress about regenerative practices. And one of my main pounding things that I did was education, education. We have to have folks educated so that this this grand idea doesn't just belly flop on us because there's too many people running around not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. So what Nicole is doing here is extremely valuable. So Nicole, let's go back. Okay, how big is the class? Do you have to be on site this whole time? How long is it? Let's go through it. So Create um, has a six-day intensive at the start in person um, and then 18 weeks online and then we come back together again in person. But it really, this is not the course to come and learn about microbiology. It's not the course to learn about what is Rick doing. Although you'll mention in one of my modules talking about you know how how do we how how do we move into no-till organics? Is it possible? Um, and you really are leading the way, Rick. I mean, it's absolutely inspirational. I mean, the work that you're doing is actually on behalf of the whole planet right now. There's a lot of no pressure, buddy. No pressure. <laughs> it's cracked. Um, but we're working through the diagnostics because I think part of what um, we bring that that's unique and I'd like to see more and more people able to do this is the diagnostics in terms of, of you walk out on a piece of land, what do you feel? What do you see? What's happening with animals? What's happening with plants? Dig a hole. How does that reflect soil wise? How do microbiology relate to animal health? How does that relate to human health? And just kind of bringing all of these pieces together. So people often want to go to the, what's the silver bullet? Give me the answer. And it's like, right. I don't have enough information to be able to do that you know like where are the pieces what's the limiting or enabling factor is it actually the person that you're dealing with is that where the issue lies and quite often would have to say that probably is you know like what's yeah. your mindset are you really interested in working in sync with nature or do you just see this as a quick buck to be made and hey if you want to make a quick buck that's fine. How do we work with that and still enable ecosystems to be really, really functional? Um, yeah, totally, Deanna. You know, it, it is that power of observation. And I think I work with some of the best graziers in the world. I've worked with some of the best horticulturists and viticulturists. Um, and some of these people still don't know how to read a plant or they don't know how to read livestock. And I'm not saying I'm an expert in any of this, but when you sit there, and you observe what is it that starts to almost draw its attention to you, you know, like thinking, um, let's talk about 
let's take something like pink eye and, and cattle. How does that relate to the quality of the forage? How does that relate to um, what's going on with soil health and water holding capacity? And, you know, just it, it's like the, the land is storytelling to us. And the more that we can begin to interpret what the story is that land's uh, telling us, then the, the less pressure that we need to put on. I think of it like leveraging. Where is my leveraging point to make the biggest difference on this landscape with the less effort and the less finances and the less time? Um, so that's what the course is really training people in doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're frozen, Sometime. but as long as you can hear me, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, it might be me. Right. Um, Nicole, you're good. Rachel, or Rachel? Good yeah, I can, I can hear you, but you're very, you're very frozen and, and cutting in and out. I, I, okay, I don't know why. Um, can you can you take over and ask ask her a question? Ask Nicole a question about uh, about about her book for for the love of soil. Maybe just Rick, just turn your video off and we'll wait, and and the connectivity might improve because you look okay. good now. I yeah, mean, you look good, good all now. the time, obviously, Rick. But <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, we're we're seeing this on on lots of different um, platforms right now that Zoom is having some issues. Well, okay. Can you hear me, Nicole? Perfect. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that that yeah, that was awesome. Um, so, what I'm going to take this class sometime. I hope you'll you'll uh, let me take it. I I I'm pretty sure I've shoulder tapped you to do this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I want I want to do this because this is where I probably falter. Is I don't understand why. There's a plant growing over here and not over here. And what, what's that telling me or telling anybody? And and I want to ask you a quick question that I want to go somewhere. Let's do, can you define agroecologists, please? What is your definition of that? Apart from being angry at ecology? No. Um, so agro, <laughs> agro means um, agriculture, uh, ecology, you know, ecological connections, thinking so it's it's putting agriculture through the framework of ecology, right? Okay. So thinking in terms of feedback loops, connectivity, diversity, um, maximizing, you know, biomass and production and health and vitality within an agricultural setting. So I I do think if people are interested in getting into regenerative agriculture, I get a lot of young people wanting to study. I'm like, go and do an ecology degree. And then go and do some organizational learning, some business thinking um, that's based on ecological principles because it all comes together so beautifully. I actually say don't do an agricultural degree because right. you're going to learn what not to do. And then we have to like get you out of university and have another conversation. <laughs> right. But now, yeah. Young kids ask me, um, you know, what would you suggest? And I always tell them my opinion is major in biology and minor in ecology. So, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. So, same type of things. Um, good foundation. Uh, Ed, got um, Ed, just, that's a really good question. Can I respond yeah. to Ed's question? Yeah, because um, yeah, I, I think for me, this is the pivotal piece right now is delivering 
an ambitious program like create which is you know the arrogance to train the trainers really you know that mm -hmm. but this is the pieces that we need to shift away from the pyramid academic i'm i'm you know i've got more letters after my name so that means i'm smarter or i'm better than you i'm not saying that people think that but um instead of actually we learn alongside of each other and that's what a really good coach is and if i feel about what the definition of coaching is it's it's working with possibility and so i don't necessarily know what the total outcome of something or working with someone or if i say you're going to be a different person at the end of the program i don't know who that person is um yeah. just as working on a landscape we don't know what the full potential for any landscape is because very very few people are have a perfect no one has a perfect ecosystem no one's i fully regenerated and i can now retire nice. it's very much a journey so thinking about the journey with the students i'm learning more and more about how subtle can i be with my coaching um how can I frame a question that actually leads someone to see something that they hadn't seen before and it becomes their aha and their motivation to take action? Because I can come in and provide some kind of navel-gazing insight and then leave, but that doesn't make a difference in the world. That's not going to motivate someone to, you know, totally transform their system and get rid of all the agri-chemicals and, and start doing what Brett's doing, you know? Yeah, so I'm learning a lot about myself. I'm learning a lot about um, the quality of the question I ask. Mm. So, so how, okay, so you're going to open class number three, and I assume you've got a, a, a set size you want this class to be? I mean, 10 or 12 folks, is that right? Or do you care how many are in each class? Uh, 20 maximum, yeah, yeah. 20. So, I think if we were running them more regular, they'd be smaller. But if I'm only going to do one in Australia in the next three years, then we're going to do, you know, a, a, a 20, 20 people. You know, and it, it is a very yeah. focused yeah. school. So what we're also developing right now, what we call the runway program. So like a whole four days on microbiology and a whole four days on, especially for extension people, like the whole behavior change um mindset paradigms all of you yeah. so intensive schools on that because what we're finding is people who are interested in consulting or coaching or being an agronomist in regenerative agriculture still don't have the depth of foundational knowledge that we were kind of expecting um yeah so i feel like we're going to focus more on those in the u.s in the next few years and and do these big programs internationally and just you know light some little set some little sparks mm. yeah so yeah. so where where do you where do you think your your certificate where where are they landing i mean what are they where are they going to be in the in the world to teach that um the this initial to create courses is right across america uh, north america so canada as well we had quite a few canadians come over the border and we had one woman from Bulgaria, had this amazing bunch out of Portugal, four agronomists that really wanted to come over for the American one, but I'm pleased wow. that they're gonna wait until we do the European one at the end of next year or, yeah. So yeah, there's certainly diversity and we're talking about people that have come from viticulture to turf management to, um, you know, cropping as well as sheep, beef, 
bison. Um, so a huge diversity of what people are skilled in in terms of their management. So we do talk, you know, plants, plant physiology, um, but just, yeah, pulling all those pieces together and then a third of it really is what does it take to, 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 to be a good coach. And, you know, for me, it's always really interesting yeah. working one-on-one -on -one with people is what, what starts to arise, whether or not, uh, one example that comes to mind was working with a cropping farmer and he, he said to me, every time you talk to me, I get a headache. <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks buddy. <laughs> and, and so I said, well, tell me more about that. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm too old to, to learn this stuff. And I said, well, you're my age. So thank you very much. Um, and, and I've left him with it. I just kind of left, you know, what, what is it that you really care about? And he's like, you know, I really want to spend time with the kids and that's my passion. And I was there for a few days. And what I observed was he did everything to not come into the house. You know, he was in the shed fixing stuff. He was distracted. I don't think he went to his kid's football game, just saying. <clears throat> and then the, the day before I left, he said, I've realized why I have a headache. He said, I'm, I'm drinking and I'm drinking a lot. And oh, wow. He was drinking to avoid spending time with the family and drinking to avoid what he didn't want to see. And just by being present with him through those few days, he saw, he saw himself through another person's oh. eyes. I think, you know, I didn't have to say anything, but I know now it's been four years. He has not had a drink since and he's spending time with the family. So for me, that was like, I didn't have to do anything. I was just there to soundboard and go, what's possible for this place? But it's mind blowing. I mean, that, Nicole, that's gotta be a huge hurrah, you know, yay. That, yes. that's, what it's, that's what it's all yeah. about. Yeah, and it's, it's I, you know, not having a preconceived idea of what a property is going to look like or a family is going to look like. And, you know, this is the thing with traveling is not judging people for where they're at. You know, I have the privilege of living and staying in, in people's houses and, uh, you know, we do judge it, it pops in, go, oh, you know, and then I, I, I built muscle in terms of, I'm just going to put that to the side. That's, you know, that's not important. Yeah. that it starts to become more of the diagnostic about what is working well on this property. And they say that they want to do something, but actually we can say we're committed to something, but your actions show what your true commitment is. And there's often a gap. Like we talk about we're committed to having regenerative outcomes and justice and water quality. And then people will be, I'm just, I'm just going to spray this because I need to spray this. I need to control these insects or, or whatever. And it's like, where's that gap and how do we shrink that gap? Because heart in your heart, you you know, you do really want to spend time with the kids or or whatever it is that, that you love. Right. Um, yeah. See, you know, here I've I you know, there's it's so it's all about building soul health and it's all about human health. And I think, you know, there's it's it's so hard to take that that step, the human health side of it, because you're gonna sacrifice yield. I'm not going to sit here and tell you we're not, because we are, but that's okay, because we're still... Uh, you turn your um, video off, Rick, because I really want to... You, you dropped out, and I think that was really important. So you were saying you really don't want to sacrifice human health. Yeah, video. Yeah, yeah we, I'm sorry. I don't know why our, my internet's never done this before. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, 
uh, here it's all about human health and soil health and we don't think about the human health side of it enough and that's what you're talking about here because it's not about yield out here i mean everybody wants to base success on yield and that's the last thing we ought to be thinking about and i just get so frustrated sometimes but but it's so hard when i I go and speak to people nicole it's hard to get them to understand this human side this human health side of the equation because they just don't understand they don't think anything's wrong with with spraying copious amounts of glyphosate on every acre every year Hmm. so yeah and it's a it's a really interesting point and so I was doing a workshop recently, and one of the questions I asked people at the start is, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and anything was possible, what would you want? Anything, you know, for your business, for your family, for yourself, for the planet, what do you want? And these people were saying things like less bare soil. And I'm like, I should take my magic wand off you, what? But my aha in a couple of days was, these guys are so stressed, they're battling, you know, debt. Their their gut systems are, are failing because of the food that they're eating, the exposure to chemicals. Mm-hmm. That stress puts you into what we call the sympathetic network, right? You are in the flight and fight zone, and when you are there, you your ability to see shrinks, your ability to think uh, cognitively or creatively all shrinks. And so we're really dealing with a phenomenon throughout, I think, most cropping areas and across the planet because things are getting more stressful, not getting paid anymore, um, of how do we even just manage that base stress level? Because until we do that, we're not going to have people that have the ability to cognitively think. And that's part, I think, of why the food piece is so important is the American gut system is totally dysfunctional. I mean, people have leaky gut and allergies and are unable to absorb nutrients and then eating a whole lot of processed food and all of that affects your ability to think. So it's like, where do we start, Rick? Where do we start? Yeah, yeah. The whole thing, right? But, mm-hmm. I, but Nicole, I don't know how, I don't know how we get what you just said to the masses and have them understand that that this is reality. How how do do we do that? Well, that's part of each of us in our communities. It's it's the work, right? The most powerful phenomenon in in human activity is peer pressure or what um, one of my teammates, Megan Lannan, calls the social squeeze that we need to start talking about this stuff. We need to start communicating what we're doing with our own health, why we're making choices about certain foods. I'm seeing phenomenal conversations coming out of um, people's concerns with long COVID, about the inability to source good, local, healthy food. And so we're building local hubs to start these conversations happening. And um, I've been working with Apricot Lane Farms from the, um, the movie, The Biggest Little Farm watch that and watch that movie through the eyes of an eight-year-old because that's who they made that film for is kids are talking to their parents about food that that generation um i don't even know what we call them everyone has an xyz um (laughs) that generation is putting a lot of pressure on their on their on their folks so you know talking to kids going and speaking um 
at schools and, and planting the seed with, with kids right now, I think has been really, really impactful. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I'm going to, I want to go into a little bit of my story here. If you don't mind, I, you know, I'm not going to drag this out real long, but I've been, I've, I'm, I'm a diabetic now. I didn't know I was went in for some, a procedure and they realized I was diabetic and you know what, Nicole, with, with my wife, who has got me on a strict diet and I try to take care of and exercise and do what I can do. I am no longer on any medication and I have my sugar pretty well under control. I mean, we can do this. We can do this, but this yeah. goes back to you and eco agroecology and, and integrity soils and create and all this teaching that we have to have. And then we can really start to move forward with this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which comes back to what I was saying about overwhelm is, is focusing on what is my domain of influence, you know, for each of us. And is that your family members, uh, is that, you know, your community, the local school, the church that you're at, is it these kind of conversations that we need to be having? Because for me, there is no separation. And Claudia, you just said this too. Um, there's the outer landscape and the inner landscape. And the dysfunction on our land is the same dysfunction of what we're seeing internally. And when I see people bring those two pieces together, that's where we see extraordinary outcomes for landscapes because people can start to think and function and yeah. but yeah i think if you start looking at uh, i'm going to address all of america then suddenly you're going to be really really overwhelmed <laughs> yeah yeah you're right you got to pick your battles you've got to and you have to realize what does success look like and that's you know that's what i try to tell these bureaucrats that that are 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 trying to figure out something for the next farm bill what does success look like for you guys? You might want to get everyone to do this. So is it 20%? Is it 25%? I mean, you've got to start looking at things, in my opinion, more in a realistic lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally with you. And I think these conversations are impactful. But then you look at, you know, the amount of lobbying and the, and the amount of kind of corporate interest that we don't have. We, it's hard to to pull that in. And I think this yeah. is again where it comes down to local communities taking a stand um, and, and just being in communication, you know, like why was it that, that you guys even went down the organic track? Because this happened before you found out you were diabetic. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that's a great question. Uh, very few people ask me that question. Um, I had a great, a great teacher, uh, you may know her, Dr. Erin Silva, University of Wisconsin. Uh, she had a seminar and it was, I, I don't remember what it was entitled, but the body of it was, why don't you come to Michigan or uh, Wisconsin and I'm going to teach you how to plant beans into cereal rye. And then 45 days later, we're going to roll it all down with a roller cramper, beans and all, and we're going to be just fine. And I'm like, you're going to do what? And that's how I started right there. That's how I got it. So then when I realized, Nicole, that we could raise soybeans without any chemistry, that's when the light bulb went off. And I said, we've got to do this now. Then, then I sit around 
And I start thinking about the family members who've been sick in our family. My wife's had cancer. My nephew's had cancer. My sister-in-law's had cancer. And these are all people that are closely related to the farm. Yes. And then, then you realize enough is enough. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, I say this too. Um, I'm probably the first generation that's been around chemistry my whole life because my father, yes, he had chemistry, but he didn't start till he was in his forties. I was around dad when I was 12 years old because you mm -hmm. want to get home and help dad plant corn. Yeah. So, and I think about that and I think about, oh my gosh, we were swimming in that stuff. It was spraying all over us. And, and Nicole, I just, I've just enough, enough is enough. So I hope that when people hear these podcasts and I talk around the country, that I just inspired someone to change something, just do one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think you do. That is your gift. Right. And success and then. Yeah, but also what I love is that you weren't motivated by um, a, a catastrophe. You know, often meet producers who were motivated because, you know, they nearly died because of egg chemicals or, yeah. um, you know, their yeah. children were really sick. What I love is that you were able to create this and then, and this is the piece is that we start to reduce stress, we start to see possibility and your ability to kind of look up and see that whole picture, which includes, you know, family members, health, and everything just starts to fall into place. Um, and that's a very powerful agent for change because once something like that happens, you're not going to go back. You're not going to go back to all the, the no, chemical. No way. No, that door is no gone. <laughs> that's long gone. Yeah. But now, it's, what got, it's what gets me interested in the, the epigenetic processes that we're working through right now like people are worried about you know human populations i'm like we don't need to worry about it we're, we're doing just fine and in, in cutting our own population down with the epigenetic effect and the chemical effects on things like sperm and hostile yep. wombs and, and all the rest of it so um but for me it's it's what are we doing in our own bodies and our own exposures how's that affecting our children and our children's children and our children's children and so this has been a passion of mine since my son was very young knowing that i had um i had chemical exposure when in the womb that has meant that i have the the mthfr gene is switched on which means i don't detox properly about 40 million Americans have this gene. Whether or not it's switched on depends on chemical exposure when you're young. Um, wow. But it means that I have the potential to pass that on to my son, who is very chemically sensitive. All right, so what do I need to do in terms of reprogramming him epigenetically? So what kind of food did he have? So I reversed his AD, ADD through diet. Um, when he when he was growing up so I'm like and just like you've done that with your diabetes there's things that we have control on that can seem like they're totally out of control right yeah now uh, isn't that crazy I thought you were supposed to take a pill for that isn't that what they tell us <laughs> oh and the pill means you got to take this other pill to counteract that other effect yeah so, so they say yeah. by the time you're 65 in America you're on six different pharmaceutical drugs on average which means well like <laughs> that's average <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I don't take anything. My mum doesn't take anything. That's doing crazy. pretty well. That's crazy. Okay. So, tell us. 
you got beautiful sun coming in on your face. Where, where are you right now? Uh, I am in Big Timber, Montana. We're currently looking for a place to live. So I've been in my trailer, you know, on and off for the last six years, most of the time in the trailer. Um, and now I'm ready to to settle down or, um, yeah, set up a regenerative education center is my dream. Um, so, yeah, just looking for a place to stop, get some yeah. wall, <laughs> get off the wheels. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you've served this this beautifully i tell you you're a trooper and and you're in the trenches and and i you know that's awesome so i want to thank you for that um well so where where are you going next week i am going to go to new zealand i haven't been to new zealand since pre-covid i haven't seen my son for three years um nearly three years so yeah it's going to be good to just go oh, and spend yeah. a couple of weeks with him i'm we're just gonna i'm just hanging out with him and the family not doing any work turning yeah. my computer off yeah. um so that'll be good but yeah yeah i mean i think thinking about things that that kind of come to the forefront the question that you started with at the start of this call um you know, I think some of this idea about, you know, how much energy we're expending in agriculture, how much energy use are we doing individually has kind of come into some of my thinking and planning around traveling. So trying to cut back, um, yeah, yeah, on my own consumerism. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's wise. We, we need, we need you to be the teacher's teacher and that's what you're doing. So I'm glad you're able to go home. How old's your son now? 21. Yeah. 21. Great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad you're able to go back home because you know everything's in the in the in the media now. So, so uh, your your country there, they were very strict on lockdowns, and I mean they just shut the country down. Yeah, right. That's why I came here. <laughs> like I'm going yeah. to Montana. No one's going to tell me what to do. <laughs> no, but man, what? What a beautiful place. Big Timber, Montana. Oh, it's, it's, it. it's gorgeous. Gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so what's some of the next steps for you, Rick? Like what, what's some of the things that you're thinking about right now? I, uh, I'm thinking about, um, epigenetics. Mm -hmm. We're, we're working on keeping our, I've, we've gone back, um, We've gone back to we went to Colorado, and we got seed that's off patent for soybeans. We've grown them out, and then grew that out, and grew that out, and now we're up to an acre basis. We got 40 acres of beans that are going to be great, and that's the that's going to be our supply of beans from now on, because I want the bean to adapt to our system. So I want the epigenetics to take over. Same thing with the microbes. I think we got the same thing going on here. And then that which leads me into my other uh, avenue, I want to look at stimulants that are going to turn on certain sectors of the biome. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, because you, you told me this, I'll tell you, you uh, it might have been about a year ago, we had a pretty long conversation and you explained to me, and I want to go into this right now because this is important. And and folks, please out there, you got we got a we got a wonderful lady here. Let's get some questions up here in the chat. We got Keith Burns came on with the question here. Keith, I'm going to get to you in just a second. Um, but Nicole, 
you and I started talking about how can we get certain uh, influences into the biome that are going to create environments that certain weeds do not want to germinate in. Now, let's don't get confused here that we're going to create something that's going to kill giant ragweed. That's not what we're talking about. So mm -hmm. go into more detail of what, what that cut you were talking to me about how to introduce certain things at certain times and you, you build these, um, you build these systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of layers in this, which actually in part tie to the epigenetic space. So uh, some of you that, that maybe that term is new, but thinking epi means above or around or below the gene, right? So we have genes, it doesn't mean that they're switched on or off. It takes a signal from that environment to switch a gene on or gene off. So part of what we're seeing with things like giant ragweed is they now have an overexpression of the gene that a herbicide will specifically target. So thinking of glyphosate, which targets the shikimate pathway, these plants have the ability to overexpress inside that gene. Now, what we're seeing is there's ways to switch that gene expression off, right, which are aromatic amino acids. Um, we're seeing this with vermicast to worm castings. There are metabolites uh, <clears throat> that can actually um, work to switch those genes off. So then that plant doesn't have the same resilience to a herbicide if that's what you're using. Yeah. But the other piece to this is how do we change the biological community that signals what seed needs to germinate. So if you think of seeds in a square yard of soil, you might have like 10,000 seeds. Um, what you see growing above the ground is due to some kind of signal, right? And that might be environmental. It might be, when I say environmental, it's also influenced by microbiology, right? So the microbes are gonna influence, you know, water and mineral availability. So the seed receives a signal um, due to five different pathways, depending on what we're talking about. But basically, it receives a signal to germinate. So if we can change those soil conditions and that soil environment, we can alter who is it that, that's going to naturally respond right now. Um, and we are seeing some extraordinary results where it actually, the these seedbeds are so clean, it's kind of freaking people out. Like they are using a pre-emergent herbicide but not requiring the same post-emergent herbicide that they're seeing that once that plant gets going we're bio priming the seed so we're putting on uh, compost or vermicast extract or some of the microbial brews or products that people are selling um, that plant starts to germinate and it's sending a signal that's actually suppressing um, the weeds around it so it's it's I think this whole world that's opening up that we know very little about and it's very exciting. Yeah, I, I'm going to come back on. Hopefully, tell me if I get stuck here. But, folks, this this is exactly what we need to take this next step further into this organic, or it doesn't even have to be organic, a, a regenerative with no tillage and no chemistry. We can do this, but we need the concepts that Nicole just talked about. Learn, and you're going to get this from your class, right? Right, Nicole? Mm -hmm. You'll learn these yeah. concepts? Well, we will do, we're going to do these four-day courses that are very practical focused because I think we can geek out. Oh, I can geek out. I can so geek out on this, but it, it's how does 
how is that applied on the ground and what does it really mean and what difference is it really going to make? Um, and so, yeah, these classes will, the ones that we're going to roll out that we're designing right now are what we're calling the runway classes. They are designed to uh, give you the skills in order to, you know, make an extract or do biopriming. What are some of the considerations? Um, how could we make some of our own biologicals and what biological do we want to be making? I mean, do you want to buy a packaged product? Or really, should we be looking at endemic native species and brewing them up? Okay, right. what kind of how, what are the conditions for that? Sign me up. Sign, when's the next <laughs> class? Yeah. All right. Let's get to Keith here. Keith's got he's got a comment and he's got a question. Nicole, thank you for the great work with Create Program. The thank huge you. influx of Regen products with the Climate Smart Commodities Grants are going to put a huge strain on two things. Number one, cover crop seed supply, yep, and people qualified to assist producers with regenerative conversions. Keep yeah. training the folks, we're going to need them. Yeah. Keith, you're exactly right. Exactly right. And you know, all of these practices can be degenerative or regenerative depending on whose hands they're in. You know, you. Uh, when, there's no silver bullets in all of this. So if, if you're if you're not coming about this in a whole systems and and looking at all of these principles and all of that framework, then you could actually be going in the opposite way than what we want to achieve. And that's when I get really concerned is when we start to legislate practices. That's not necessarily going to change. That's a good word, or degenerative. That that you know what that, that's excellent because you're right. <laughs> there, there are steps in this that are actually going backwards. And we need to avoid those. You're right. Okay, Keith's got a question that was probably sparked from your conversation just had a moment ago. Nicole, can you comment on how much better a seed grown in a re regen environment might be due to a rich coating of native microbes than a counterpart grown in a conventional system with very few microbes? Yeah, and the, there is. Um literature on you know seed coating with microbiology that you can go and look at but a lot of what we see in the field is and you might have seen this rick is your crop seems to come up slower than the neighbors and i've had a few cropping guys ring me because they're panicking because yep. the neighbor's crop is up and there's aren't there isn't and then i say go and dig a hole and what you find is uh, conventional without that microbial inoculant come out of that ground so fast because they have to. They haven't kind of got that energy, that microbiology and that seed. So they have to get up and start capturing sunlight energy. Whereas the regenerative will have these huge root systems. They're really setting themselves up for success. And then they'll pop their head up and pretty soon they're catching up. And what you see is a lot of conventional have these big biomass early on. And that's not good. It's that's not a good sign. That just shows that you're just kind of leaping out of the ground um, with an imbalance, probably in nitrates, excess phosphorus, um, excess potassium, something like that. That doesn't translate then into food quality. And I think with um, Dan Kittridge's work and the um, Bionutrient Food Association, we're going to see more of what does this mean um, in terms of that crop growing if we are biopriming or we're not. Uh, certainly, we see better disease and pest resistance, um, and there is some trial work on that, but definitely what we see in the field. And, you know, there's been people like, I think of Di and Ian Haggerty in Western Australia that have been doing this for like 
20 years. Um, and Grant Sims down in Victoria in Australia, who's uh, been doing this since 2006, I think, and just seeing amazing results and testing the quality of the grain that they're growing, finding better digestibility, no residues on those. So what's interesting to me is um, we've seen organic crops being rejected from the EU because of the amount of glyphosate in it, and the glyphosate's coming in the rainfall, right? Um, but crops that have been grown regeneratively that have biopriming microbiology on that seed, they have microbiology on the leaf surfaces, they don't have any residues, right? The microbiology are actually um, digesting those residues on the leaf surfaces. So these guys are not getting rejected from the EU, which I think is really cool. And this is all anecdotal, right? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? We have no, no. a world that values the, the data, but actually the stories are important. Your yeah. stories are important. Well, okay, let's go. I, I want to get to back to something on Keith there, but I want to go another direction here first. Okay, help me out here, Nicole. So if we had a, a, a bioreactor that was in, in function and doing its thing, and we're ready to extract out, um, a, you know, the tea or whatever, what would be your recommendation? Should we have a, a seed treatment? Then should we have an in-furrow treatment when we plant? Then do we foliar feed? You know, walk us through what you think should be that spoon feeding process. Well, it comes to your goals again, right? Rick, how fast do you want to move this system? What kind of time, yeah. energy, equipment, and all of that? Um, working um, and seeing the results in uh, Cotopaxi, where they were doing the um, Johnson Sioux compost of putting it on as a seed dressing and then putting it on as a foliar. Um, that seed coating is helpful, but it was really catapulted by doing that foliar. So, you know, do both if you okay. can. Um, and what you'll find is as that system starts to, to really hum, you might only be doing a seed dressing um, because that, you know, you have aggregate stability, you have microbiology working. And the thing is, we if you are cropping, then you are disturbing the ground. So you've got to earn the right to do that. You're not going to do nothing because yeah. you are at times, unless you're doing the RIC and you're putting a whole lot of biomass down there. Um, but you want to know your microbe that microbiome is working really well. You've got digestion happening. Um, yeah, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Um, you know, I was very stubborn. I, of course, I'm a stubborn guy. You, you probably know that. But I, I totally agree. If you are listening to this or any other people that talk about this, and you are deciding to make a change now, by all means, get a microbial biome system in place. I did not do this. I, I figured I was gonna grow my own biology just by the simple fact of reducing tillage and reducing chemistry load and, and salt loads and acids and all those other things. I, pro I am, but it's taken much longer to get there. So I highly recommend in the transition period, a full-blown microbial systematic approach added to your six principles of soil health. Yeah, yeah and, and I'm passionate about closing the loops. So how do we make these on farm? So not buying the bugs and the jugs, but actually how do we, how do we cultivate things from our local resources? Um, yeah. 
And and that that's the thing with goals, right? You we can achieve extraordinary things, but maybe it's going to take you seven to ten years. And I find a lot of people are like, well, that's seven or ten seasons. I only have twenty seasons to get this right before I'm not right. going to be farming anymore. So um, why not? Especially things like a, a vermicast or a compost extract doesn't. It's not going to cost you a lot, right? We figured out on a ranch I was working on for every hour that they spent on that worm farm, it gave them a $500 return. So it's a one to $500 return. So that's okay. one of the best returns like pigs, you know, if you're doing pigs, <laughs> looking at well, your return on investment. Yeah. Well, we've got a question here from, from, uh, Laud Myla. Uh, I believe she is a PhD. Uh, I think, I think she has a PhD. Could you talk about vermicompost derived and you're gonna have to help me here. Pseudo, Monus fluorescence for preventing frost damage. Nice one. Yeah. So Pseudomonas fluorescence is um, a bacteria that uh, worms excrete. So there's many, many things like if you want to look at microbial diversity, it comes out of a worm's butt. I talk about the elixir of life comes out the back end of a worm. Um, and this specific Pseudomonas actually eats the frost forming Pseudomonas called Pseudomonas syringae. So Pseudomonas syringae is part of what forms ice nucleation in the atmosphere. So what, what helps to form clouds is the specific bacteria. Um, mm. And what it also does is it's part of what causes frost. And I know this in Celsius, which is not very helpful in Fahrenheit, but down to a minus six degrees Celsius, which might be around 34, uh, no, 26 degrees. Yeah. Um, so we're not talking about a really, really hard, hard frost. We're just talking about those um, in-season frost, early, late-season frost that can be very damaging. Is we've used this organism in viticulture, um, and it will protect a leaf surface for up to two months. So if you're applying that as a foliar in the season, then this particular organism will actually eat the organisms that are making frost damage. So. Um, kind of a neat side effect. I mean, these oh, organisms yeah. that come out of a worm's butt include four organisms that eat up the waxy coatings that cause soils to be water repellent, for instance. So we're using it for water repellency as well in Australia, where you have huge, huge issues with hydrophobic soils. So there's some cool stuff, microbes that live in a worm's butt. See, that, that, that's, that's where I want to get to, you know, know understanding more of that that side of the equation, um, because I want to learn more about cause and effect. If I do this, what's happening because of this? And Nicole, you know as well as I do, everything you do in life has unintended consequences, everything. So sometimes I, I may think I'm doing something good, but I could be really doing three harmful things somewhere else. You know, and what what comes to mind is how in uh, when they first developed some of the rhizobia for soybean, so you know this story better than me. So they had an inoculant for soybeans, commercially released, put that out uh, where people were growing soybeans, and then 20, 30 years later, they developed another inoculant that this particular rhizobia caught creates more yield, right? More biomass. Great, we're going to put that one into the system. The problem was the initial one that they developed is more competitive than the new one. And no matter what they do, that old inoculant's still there and it, it, yeah. it suppresses yield. Yeah. And that's my concern is people are buying commercial products that they don't know what impact is that potentially going to have 
is this actually killing something that I, you know, is it suppressing? And that's where I think really using local microbiology um, is key because yeah. we, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. So the, I want to go back. We got a bunch of questions here, but I want to go back to Keith a moment ago. Keith asked you about a seed that grown in a region environment versus a non. Okay, so now let's go another step further. What about a seed that's grown in Indiana that's then going to be maybe shipped to um, Arkansas and or that's maybe not even extreme enough. I don't know, Minnesota. And and will that work in Minnesota as well as it did in Indiana? Well, quite possibly not. And you might know the answer better to that. But I think part of this is speaking into your your epigenetic breeding is that by what you're doing is you're creating a cultivar that that's better suited to your climate. Yeah. But actually, that might have a competitive environment in, in a climate that's more temperate, for instance, or, you know, breeding something that uh, is adapted to stress of heat and cold. And this is what many breeders are doing now. I mean, they could get into the CRISPR or the GMOs, or you could look at epigenetics. And I, I do yeah. believe that epigenetics is going to be a much better avenue but that seed might be better ad adapted for a different microbiome. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. also remember that your seed that you're you're producing has a microbiome in it. There's microbiology inside. So when that plant germinates, it actually grows that microbiology with it. Yeah. And you see this, I'm sure this is on Keith. I know what Keith's thinking here. At least I think I do. He's got, <laughs> <Dangerous>. growers, <laughs> he, he's got growers all over the world probably. Yeah and he's trying to supply the masses that want that product. And he probably then gets those phone calls, Keith, I don't know what happened here, but I planted your product and it didn't grow. Yeah. Well, I think we can get, get to some answers why that's not why it's happening. So I'm sure that's a big yeah. concern for Keith. Um, okay, uh, ask Nicole, what can we implement into a conventional system to, to support the microbes how can we use humates? Yeah, and so humates, which is the raw, soft brown coal, is my preferred form. One of the best probably tools for this is humic acid. So it's the chemically extracted version of the humate. Um, so concentrated carbon, very easy to use, um, very easy to put down the drill, um, put on seeds. It is a concentrated fungal food and I could never understand why until I came across a paper that demonstrated what you see is long chains of carbon and they're joined by electron charges is these fungi are feeding on the energy of the electron charge so you get these hugely complex long strand carbon and the fungi are feeding on those electrical charges basically it's super powering them so we do find that that is a good tool in transition um, I will use a humic with any of my nitrogen, um, any of that fertilizer. Generally, if it can go with a humic, if we're putting it on leaf surfaces, you've got to watch with staining. We might use fulvic acid, um, which is a different component than the humic acid. It's a like a golden color, again, concentrated carbon. But I, I, I feel like there's some really simple tools that are just going to help one with fertilizer use efficiency or herbicide use efficiency. And secondly, they increase what we call cell wall permeability. So they increase the ability for the nutrient or the herbicide to enter into the plant. 
So we're not seeing the same volatilization. We're not seeing the same losses to waterways. You spend less. So I could go on to any cropping operation that's using nitrogen and say, hey, I can drop your nitrogen use by 30% and you will see no yield change just through the addition of a humic acid. And it's a blanket statement, but I've never found it to not be true um, because nitrogen is so incredibly inefficient and wasteful. So, yeah. you know, if you do nothing else and you're just looking at this to start with, do that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So if if you were going to lay out a a definition of regenerative and maybe you've got one i, I don't know uh, and let's say there's still some chemistry going to be involved in this okay a, a, a reduced amount are you saying then that we need to add like a fulvic acid with that that tank mix and then it's going to make this less harmful to the biology is that what you're saying yep yep and and there's another part to it. Um, see, we can make our own fulvic and humic acid from vermicast or compost, right? So when you do a beautiful dark extract of a compost and it's a dark chocolate brown color, that's your humic acid. When you see it settle and there's a golden color, that's your fulvic acid. So people are using compost and vermicast to make their own fulvic and humic. So I used to sell a, um, a certified organic humic acid from vermicast um, in New Zealand. Here you have very different standards you can use chemically extracted stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, when I think about my my definition is we cannot define a paradigm shift from outside of a paradigm. It's impossible. You cannot, to those marketeers and policy makers that are sitting outside of regenerative agriculture and want to define it, you can't define something while it's emerging. And I think the more that we try and pin a definition, then we're limiting innovation. We're limiting what's possible because we don't, we can't even imagine what the potential and what's possible. Yeah. So for me, regenerative agriculture is definitely the outcomes. And I'm talking about outcomes from animal welfare, water quality, food quality, human health, justice, profitability, all of that. And it's, yeah. it's a huge undertaking, right? So I don't know anyone that scores 10 out of 10 on all of those metrics, but it's a moving target. You know, this year I'm doing this. Okay, am I expanding on that? Am I always expanding? And I'm very concerned when I see dogma entering this. I've seen people say, a conventional cropping guy say to me, um, well, I can't be regenerative because I, I can't do livestock or I can't be regenerative because I don't want to do cover crops. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything except look at how do I get a system that starts to be more vibrantly healthy? How do I support a yeah. microbiome? You know, and so your year one, two, and three could look very different from four, five, six when you really start to hone in and go, how good can I get this? How amazing can yeah. the system be? But don't start there. If, if that scares you and you're like, there's no way I'm going to do livestock, don't do livestock. No one says you have to do that. Right, right. Well, since we're there, we had a question from Tim. Talk about cattle benefits. Why not start with them to build the soil? Um, yeah, and you you absolutely could. I think um, livestock are phenomenal biodigesters themselves, you know, and, and again, it comes down to them having a healthy microbiome. So we've seen differences between properties that have animals that they might be bringing in just um, 
out of the sales barns um, that right. that you don't know what's happened to them. They're not necessarily going to help you achieve your goals versus animals that have been born and raised and have a healthy microbiome. Um, if I say to so my average cropping size before I stopped consulting was 30,000 acres. How are we going to get livestock across all of that? And, and it becomes really, really overwhelming. So yes, I believe in um, livestock, but can we bring in the essence of cow? And the essence of cow might be a really good quality compost of vermicast, right? And then we're putting that down the drill and starting to introduce some of the microbiology that come from livestock. I think we're going to see more collaboration of livestock with cropping producers who are benefiting each other. And, and I've met quite a few now who are like, I'll put in a cover crop, I'll graze my cattle, we'll improve your soil health. And that's working really, really well if they know how to manage animals well, right? So being really careful around when are you grazing that, not doing no. soil damage and soil treading because you're not going to make friends and they're not going to let you come back if you do that. Right. And again, folks, this can all be achieved in, in Nicole's create system that she has for not a pun, but she's created this system of teaching. Uh, all of these steps we've talked about are all parts of her program. So it, look it up. It's great. I'm going to be, I'll be a, I'll be a member, a classmate here one of these days real soon. All right, we got we got to get, so we to have a fellowship, right? So we have a fellowship. So if you go to integritysoils.com, you can actually see those um, incredible students who have graduated and are now available for coaching. So yeah. there are people right now that you could work alongside with and um, yeah, really expand what's possible for your own operation. So very excited to see them out and about. Yeah. And I mean, with the power and the, the faith that your name carries, if you were taught by Nicole Masters, then you're going to be welcome just about anywhere to teach. So it's a great, it's a great, great thing you're doing. Um, That's very kind. We've got more questions here. Um, Nicole, how would you introduce humates to a rangeland grazing system? Rachel, thank you for the question. Oh, Rachel, you're an angel. Um, uh, it's probably one of my favorite tools on rangeland. And I literally do say, if you are not, Putting a free choice humate out for livestock, you're crazy. And I'll tell you why you're crazy. One of the things it does is it relaxes the villi of the gut. So anytime you're seeing animals scouring, it's because the villi have done this and the food's coming through. You're not getting very oh. good digestion. It also binds to any mycotoxins and alkaloids. So most rangeland, you guys have underlying some kind of chronic just suppression right and that will be because they're eating wild native plants that have got alkaloids or they are eating ergot or some kind of fungal um, diseases that are affecting their overall performance you know i want to see livestock that are skipping literally like the happiest healthiest cattle and part of it is by putting a humate out we can bind to that now they did some work in Australia on biochar but but the results are very similar in terms of these guys were feeding one pound per cow per day. And they did that by adding about 10% molasses just so the animals would eat that humate. And what they found was their soil carbon levels came up, their methane levels went down, their soil nitrogen came up and the dung beetles go freaking nuts. We counted 700 dung beetles in a cow pie 
What? Uh, the cow pies were sent off to Jonathan Lundgren. 700 dung beetles. I can show you the video. It's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And that was from, by putting a bit of humate out there, it's stored sunlight energy and everything just goes crazy. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And it, so, it is a wonder to watch. So what is the name of that product? What would be a product you'd go online and buy? What's it called? Um, it is called, um, it's just raw humate. Raw right? humate. And, yeah. And I want to work with companies that are doing, you know, that, that raw humate is often, um, it can be a waste product or companies that are doing this in a very ecological manner, knowing that this is something that's being mined, right? Um, you know, it's, and, and it's mined. Is so it you Texas, might, it's Texas or uh, or Canada, right? Uh, no, well, it's interesting. The, the product that comes out of North Dakota, we use in New Zealand and Australia. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so through the Dakotas, uh, New Mexico, um or new mexico yeah, yeah not texas yeah. new mexico yeah 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 so um let me show you this because it's only short and it's really cool can you see that yeah 700 dung beetles holy cow yeah yeah and so you have systems like that um you don't have to worry about the decomposition you're not going to have cow pies that are weapons right these cow pies break down so quick and it sounds like swarms of wasps like it's the freakiest thing to listen to is you can hear these things flying in and it's dung beetles and they can fly like two and a half miles to a tasty dung pie so you put some good cow pies out there and they are coming yeah 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 isn't it <laughs> isn't it crazy though nicole if you have that that one thing that that beneficial wants they the message goes out like yeah. the, like a like we think we've got the the internet figured out they've had this figured out for centuries and yeah. the message goes out and boom here they all come yeah yeah and they're looking at us go you guys are bumbling around in the dark um there's an interesting yeah. phenomenon that's happening with um smoke though that does kind of concern me so uh, plants use and microbes use different types of volatile organic compounds to communicate and, or, you know, to make smells of pollen and attract, you know, parasitic wasps or whatever. But the influence of smoke or carbon monoxide and fumes is actually plants are cutting back the amount of volatile organic compounds. They're not signaling anymore because no one can listen because the smoke drops those volatile organic compounds out and yeah. I'm like, wow, that's another unintended consequence. <laughs> well, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, that just made me think we got a bunch of questions here, but that Nicole, that made me just think of something. And I don't have any proof of this, but I sure feel like that the the way the the corn and soybeans are being bred today, that they're breeding out the associations to mycorrhizal fungi. I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but I think I see it happening. And that's another reason why I want to go down the epigenetics road and I want to get a seed that's going to adapt to our system. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think you're on the right track, Rick, because more and more people are waking up to this and they don't know where to go. So um, watching some groups in New Zealand now saying, OK, I have that seed. Can we do some exchanges? Was that grown in a regenerative environment? Yeah. Because how seed is grown is not how you want to grow, you know, and I discovered this when working in used to work in the pit fruit industry in like 2005 and 
those trees were all conventional trees. You know, they had no natural resistance to pests and diseases. So you had to give them all these chemicals. And then when these yeah. guys tried to go organic, so challenging because you've got these trees, you know, that are set up in that manner. So I yeah. think um, this is the challenge for this generation and you are leading the way, Rick. And it's, it's, I'm very well, grateful to know you. Well, thank you. I, I, I pre I'm honored. Thank you so much. Um, Ludmila, another question. Do you apply P fluorescence with molasses and sea salt? That's first question. And in cost tens of billions in losses, seed endophytes. I'm not sure what she means by that, but the first was, question. I think replying is uh, like responding as we were talking. So endophytes oh, okay. as in you know, microbiome inside the seed. Um, I'm careful about applying any of my biologicals with sea minerals. I, those of you that know my work know I love sea minerals. I love seawater. Um, uh, you just got to be careful putting biologicals in with that. If you do, then you're going to add in the sea mineral first, get it very, very dilute before you would have put a biological in there. Um, I'm probably not going to add molasses um, into that. If you need a sticker, I mean, you could use, there's lots of different commercial stickers, but um, like yucca, different, a bit of seaweed, something that's going to help that sit on that. Um, and then maybe if you're thinking about getting something like Florenzins to stick on a seed, then spraying late later in the day. So you're not going to, you know, zap it with UV. Um, I'm actually more interested in metabolites than living microbiology. That's kind of where I've gone more and more these days. So I'm, I'm not as interested in how do I get these specific microbes. I'm interested in how do I create um, a system that has as much diversity of metabolites. And if that was my extract or if that's what's happening in the soil, because that's what sets a plant up for success. That's what signals to other microbes to wake up. Yeah. But when we're thinking about, you know, disease resistance or food quality, um, the ability to produce volatile organic compounds, right? So the ability for plants to communicate with each other takes nutrition and it takes metabolites. Um, and these plants can't do that without adequate nutrition, right? They're just going to look after themselves and survive. And yeah. most of our modern plants are in survival mode instead of full, vibrant, expansive nutrition, right? They can't afford to do that. They're barely getting through the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. We, we have so many good questions on this show. Um, now, Bryce, I, I, this is probably a comment based on some previous conversation he says north to south not as bad as seed going south to north from what i have seen so he's probably talking about that adaptability of of a seed being grown in the north and going south versus uh, in the south going north and i would probably agree with that except for uh, cereal rye cereal rye a lot of it comes from the south and it then is coming into these colder climates yeah. So, uh, and that would probably be the same with canola or brassicas in general. Like, yeah. I think sometimes we're growing crops in the ecotype that maybe they're not well suited for. You could breed it in that ecotype and then send it north, and it might do better. I yeah. thought you were going to say something about east and west and like paramagnetism or something. I was like, oh, that's cool, but there might be something in that too. You know, moving yeah. against the poles. Again. <laughs> And again, if, if Keith's still on, I mean, these are things he's got to be concerned about because he's trying to figure out how to ramp up green cover and be able to get enough, pro, you know, products 
to go out, out, out the whole thing backfiring. So it's, yeah. it's going to, I mean, my gosh, Nicole, the, when you stop and think about all of the, all of the parts of this of that have to happen for this so-called rollout of, of commodity or uh, what's, what's uh, climate specific crop, you know, this is going to yeah. be hard. Well, I think too, um, my invitation for everybody that's working in this space right now is to check in where am where have I got a scarcity mentality about this? Where am I feeling like I need to be competitive? Because we need everyone to succeed out of this. And if we can share information and empower other organizations to set up and not just go, hey, this one company's going to solve this whole big challenge. There are lots of other organizations that maybe they just need some better advice, you know, and, and I've been very grateful for the people that have helped to support my knowledge and learning um, because they had a regenerative mindset that this isn't about being in competition. This is not a, I, I win. And so you lose kind of state, like how can we ensure that everybody wins out of this? Um, And hopefully the producers, instead of seeing what's happening right now with like, the shareholders and pesticides are set to double profitability this year from like $8 trillion to $16 trillion. And it's like the farmers are no better off, but you know, who's doing quite well. Thank you very much. And we need to be putting that back into farmers hands. And this comes back to what you're saying about yield, right? This is why are we not talking about profitability? Why are we not talking about calories produced? Um, Because, and, and what are we not talking about the energy that it takes for those calories to be produced? I mean, these are the big topics that I think regenerative ag is really solving. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally I'm with agree. you, Ed. Yeah. yeah. All right, uh, Doug, uh, thanks for the question, Doug. What rate do you use of humates with your 28% gallon ratio? Do you have one? Um, I work more off a how much am I putting on per acre basis and you'd want to work with a company and work out because different products are different concentrations, different companies. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And we're not aligned with product. I've never been aligned with product. I've never taken a kickback. Apparently that's quite rare (laughs) when I say to companies, I don't take a kickback. They're like, you're the first uh, agronomist who hasn't taken a kickback. Um, Yeah. So work with those companies about rates and, and dilution. Yeah. Yeah. And I always wondered, I don't, I guess, you know, you were concerned about adding biology to the seawater. What what happened to what in the world happens when you add biology to 28% UAN? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I can remember a couple of years ago, Nicole, there was an ad for a seed company that had a had uh, their full-blown seed treatment, you know, whatever all it is they put on there, and they're going to add biology to that seed treatment, so now they're going to be a regenerative farmer. Well, the, the biology's dead. Yeah, yeah, and that's where the term snake oil, I think, comes from. But that's why we will be rolling out these four-day microscope schools as well, not expecting that you're going to be, like, proficient laboratory level use of microscopes, but that you can look at a product that you sold and say, is this viable? You're going to be able to look at an extract and say, is this active? And what happens when I put sea minerals in? And at what point do I kill them? Or if I use UAN, how diluted? And if I add a humic, do they survive? So that you can answer that question for yourself. 
Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. You've got to test this on your own farm under your own practices. Totally right. agree. Yeah. Um, Mila, I think just have a comment. I think here there are peer-reviewed studies on fulvic acid facilitating herbicide uh, remediation. Adding fulvic acid also often allows to cut effective rates by half or at least a third and yeah. overcome herbicide resistance. That's that's interesting. It is, and you know, we've we've suggested this to a few research centers and you know the grain researchers and we can't get anyone to bite. I'm like, here you are talking about herbicide resistance is the biggest catastrophe ever. And if you drive, like I just drove through Idaho, the amount of wild oat and wild rye that's in those crops is phenomenal. I'm like, you guys are now growing more weeds than crop, despite the fact that you're using post-emergent multiple selective, uh, selective herbicides. So they're not interested in talking about this. We know it for a fact. Um, yeah, we're doing this on hundreds of thousands of acres of putting a fulvic acid in with a bit of your glyphosate, dropping your glyphosate rate, same kill, and finding as you get that microbial microbiome stimulated, needing less and less herbicide, um, back to what they used to recommend in the 70s. You know, it's like, I don't know what it used to be. You probably know. Um yeah, and there and and we're seeing microbiology able to digest that glyphosate, like it's not showing up. And we've also seen this with 2,4-D, a microbiome in the soil that can actually digest 2,4-D if we have that working well, right? So it's not to be in this. Oh, you should never ever use this. It's like what? How do I earn the right to be able to use that chemical? Yeah, yeah. I think there's microbes that even even eat radioactive material, isn't there? Yeah. 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 So oyster I mean, mushrooms will eat radiation. Yeah. Isn't isn't it amazing? We try and try and try to destroy this earth, but yet it always he reheals itself. I mean, it's incredible. It, it is incredible. Right. Um, Doug, thank, thanks for the question, Doug. How many kilograms of vermicast into 500 gallons of water to make a good beneficial on seed starter and how many gallons per acre this on the seed um it's a good question doug and what you're looking for is color all right so you want to turn that extract on and you want it to be a beautiful dark brown color uh, so if you actually have an extract that's a through flow system we're looking for when does that color change and we're going to turn the extractor off so i'm looking for the darkest color that i possibly can have and then it's going to depend on what kind of equipment you've got, but you could be doing as much as four liters a ton on that seed. And then I would be looking at that's a, as a concentrate liquid. Um, and then looking at, yeah, can I get that down the furrow? And then can I do a foliar? However else you can get out there. Um, and it depends if you've got an auger that you're just putting liquid on it and it's going straight out into the ground and that's going to be different than if you've got seed stored because you don't obviously don't want a false germination i don't need to tell rick that um but yeah so i think we're always working out what's gonna i've seen people just make the most amazing contraptions to figure out how to make this equipment for yourself yeah yeah mm. and again you know these are guidelines do this for yourself test on your own farm uh, you know, you've got to do this because what I do here in Indiana is going to be way different than what somebody's going to do in Arkansas, for example. So please. Yeah, and 
And this is the important piece with the microbiology. Micro, microbial inoculants, extracts will not work if you do not have base foundation calcium. They will not work. They will not work if your water, if that you're using is incredibly hard. So take a look at um, how many grains of hardness do you have in your water? Um, we found about 150 parts per million is a cutoff. But we're seeing where people are doing trials with um, compost and compost extracts on really low calcium soil and they get no result. If you already have a beautifully biologically balanced soil, microbial inoculants will not work. So we have to have context. You know, people are used to urea. We put this much nitrogen on, we're going to get this much yield, which by the way is a lie, but you know, that you're going to guarantee this kind of yield. And we just, we don't yeah. see that with the biologicals. Um, and this is why you have to work it out in your own environment, in your own context. Um, and you know, I'm sure Rick will tell you, yeah. timing yeah. is really crucial. It is. I can't believe everyone's still pretty much on this call. We've been going for nearly two hours. <laughs> Oh, I know. Well, that, that's the way this goes because yeah. we got people wound up now. Yeah. Um, huh. let, let's see. Ed, Ed, uh, we've had uh, uh, Deanne is on here. Deanne's on every time. I've got I've got all these people that are that are regulars. Ed Bourgeois is on. Need to focus on encouraging more local, regional seed production and process. Yeah, you know. Ed, Ed's got a very good mind for for the, everything we talk about on this show. Um, I don't know, you know, I've I've ran this notion of of this of this losing the association of mycorrhizal fungi across a couple of seed breeders, and I actually had one seed breeder say, you know, you might be onto something there. I'm going to try to divert some cash of the company over to researching this. So maybe, maybe we can get something out of this on, on, I mean, they weren't a huge, they weren't one place, but they were a regional. So maybe we can do that. Yeah. And I think more seed companies are talking about it. And the other thing that I've seen papers on is how wheat varieties no longer signal to protozoa, to predatory protozoa. Now you need protozoa for nutrient cycling and, you know, the release of nitrogen and all this piece. And now you've got that total communication network breakdown. So if you think about it, really, those plants have Crohn's disease, right? They don't have a communication with their soil microbiome. It's just leaking um, yeah. and not, not giving them a yeah. return. Um, yeah, and that's not going to benefit anybody because a plant, we don't eat nutrition for NPK. We, we, we're eating food for the vitamins and the metabolites of what's making that's what makes us healthy. And the only way you get that is through microbiology. So anything that undermines that yeah. is actually undermining um, human health and should be illegal. <laughs> That's right. Well, let, let's, let's head to the finish line here. Uh, Daniel's got a question. So Nicole, if your soil is lacking biology, fungal bacteria, etc., and the food for that biology, is it then beneficial to apply molasses, seawater, seaweed, along with a fungal or a fungi and bacteria as a food source? Um, it's a good point, Dan Daniel, and I think the piece we need to remember is soils are not dead, right? The microbiology is there. It just might be in lower numbers. We get imbalances. 
there's some organisms that are pathogens when we have low diversity and actually become beneficial as we increase the diversity. So it's not to think that we, uh, we're totally missing these organisms. It is about how do we feed them and what feeds them is the plant, right? So the plant, if we're supporting healthy nutritional plants, then we're going to see that response microbially and, and vice versa. So the microbiology is supporting the plants. Um, so this is why we talk about bio-priming is that we are supporting that plant from the get-go so that it can drive that whole soil function. Um, so yeah, we could apply, when we talk about molasses, I'm talking about a pint, an acre. People put like gallons on. Don't do that. You'll collapse your soil. I've seen people destroy their soil with molasses, right? Um, I could put a bit of seawater in there. We're talking about 90 different elements in seawater. Um, it's an electrolyte. It stimulates microbiology. It stimulates that whole plant ecosystem. So that's why I like it. Yeah, and seaweed. Again, very diverse foods. So they're kind of cool. And that, that seaweed could also go on as a seed treatment. All right, but diverse foods. So that's why I do like the humic or the extracts because we're feeding a diversity of microbiology and, and priming that system to switch on. Yeah. yeah yeah and we're going to get to one more question here and then i'll have to have you on again nicole because i want to be respectful of your time but calcium we we really need to go deeper into the importance of having enough available calcium for the system here we're not going to do it now but that that that's a pretty deep subject it's so fun though so fun yeah. and yeah. people are sitting on a lot of calcium and it's totally dysfunctional because your fungi are not active so if you take nothing else from that start looking at why my fungi not active and the important role of calcium for everything right? that's right okay a couple more couple more things here we've had uh daniels thank you um uh, uh the young lady thanked you earlier and uh, i can't remember and i'm sorry and, but we got a question here. Um, so someone wanted to know about, here we go, is the raw humic that you talked about for livestock liquid or solid, do you give it free choice or do you limit it? I would never limit it. It is a raw humic, don't mix it up. It's not good that you, you don't want your animals taking humic. Uh, not really. Uh, um, I saw a study out of Alberta University. Um, they put collars on the cows, looking at cows um, eating raw humate, and they found every animal in the herd would try it at least once. Um, if I give them a bit of molasses just to get them used to it, but what you do find is they won't take it for most of the year until there is a mycotoxin, until the protein is out of whack. Um, just like us, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a good remedy for poisoning. Like they use it in hospitals uh, if you've been poisoned um, or for alcohol poisoning. So again, take nothing else. Uh, you could have a fulvic acid by the bed if you do like to partake, just so you feel a bit better the next day. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not going to limit livestock. Like we said, they could eat up, up to a pound a day. We find most animals you're looking at probably half an ounce um, on a, mature cattle beast steer cow um is probably a good target um but yeah don't don't worry about having to feed it to them well I, we're gonna we're gonna close her down here folks um I, i've got to tell nicole again thank you so much because i wanted her to be on in october but i i was talking to her earlier in the week 
and she told me she was going home to see family and I did not want to interrupt her through that. So on Tuesday, I asked her if she would be on this show Thursday, two days later, and she said, sure. So Nicole, thank you, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Thanks everybody for sticking with us. I'm I'm really impressed. And um, yeah, it's been a blast. It's just been a blast And Nicole safe travels and please go and unwind, relax and enjoy home, the homeland. And thank you so much. Yeah, you too, Rick. Thanks. It's a pleasure as always. You're amazing. All right. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye.